It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Now, from our nation's capital... This is Bloomberg Sound On. As we know, the storm is coming. We want to have people both get the bill done, but then be able to go home. Last vote was for a billion. This is for another four or five billion. There is no end to this. The A's are 68. The nays are 29. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Your money is not... Charity. Well, listen, I didn't go to the speech because I, I didn't want to be part of a photo op. Until Congress receives a full audit on where our money has already gone, I will not support sending additional money to this war. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Lawmakers move to keep the Grinch from stealing Christmas, but we are not there yet. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics. As the Senate approves a $1.7 trillion budget, But the House doesn't take it up until tomorrow, the same day the government is set to run out of money. We're joined by a man in the middle of it, Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, with us in just a moment on funding the government and securing the border in his district. Volodymyr Zelensky is back in Ukraine a day after his address to Congress, and some Republicans are still not convinced. We'll talk with Daniel Fried, former U.S. ambassador to Poland, now at the Atlantic Council, on funding the war. And we'll seek clarity with our signature panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us for the hour. So we cut to the chase tonight. The government is not going to shut down tomorrow night. No one is threatening that. Nobody thinks that's going to happen. But there is still work to do. The Senate passed the $1.7 trillion omnibus a bit earlier today. On this vote, the yeas are 68, the nays are 29. Under the previous order requiring 60 votes for the adoption of the motion to concur in the House Amendment to the Senate Amendment, number four with an amendment <laughs> is agreed to. You can translate that on your decoder ring. Uh, how about Patrick Leahy after his farewell address presiding over the Senate there? So there it is. Easy, easy move uh, in, in the Senate. Again, one7 trillion dollars the headline on the terminal senate passes giant funding bill with ukraine aid and election fix majority leader chuck schumer the second this is done is in the gallery talking to reporters and he says this entire result this omnibus was the result of the election here he is the mainstream of the republican party is learn has learned and is learning that um you know the trump way doesn't work and the MAGA way doesn't work And that's why we got an omnibus that was as successful as it was. That was the first test. And uh, it did have the people who were still there. But you can be sure, you know, if you looked at the votes, there was a desire on the Republican side, despite the pressure from the MAGAs and what the House Republicans said, to get this done. 
This, by the way, got done in the Senate only after a deal to bring Senator Mike Lee's amendment to the floor that would extend the Title 42 restrictions at the border. And now it goes to the House. By the way, that amendment failed. It goes to the House. It looks like we don't get votes till tomorrow morning now. We thought it was going to be a late working night. And I guess that's pretty good news for Congressman Henry Cuellar, who joins us now, the Democrat from Texas, whose border sits, uh, whose district, I should say, sits on the border, is with us. Uh, Congressman, thanks for being here. Is, is the congressman right about that? Is Senator Chuck Schumer right about that, that this omnibus wouldn't be happening without the results of this election? Well, you know, I, I think the ominous happens every election, every year. The ominous is something that we have to pass. It's a must-pass uh, bill legislation. But, you know, after every election, as you know, it always uh, becomes a little interesting because new dynamics will come in because a new majority might want to delay it. So yeah. there's always new dynamics, but we have to pass it every year. Sure, but it depends what goes in it. Uh, and there was a lot of deal-making here at the last minute. What happens in the House? Are you going to pass this tomorrow morning? Absolutely. We are going to go ahead and pass it. Uh, look, every bill is uh, is put together and there are different opinions. It's not the, the way I want it or somebody else might want it, but it's, it's combined together. And uh, we are going to pass it. And uh, there is money for Homeland. Uh, you know, I'm very interested on that. I said in three committees, Homeland, Defense and, of course, Ag. But uh, talking about the border, there is money for border security here. This wouldn't have come about unless uh, Mike Lee's amendment was uh, was struck down uh, or or allowed on the floor. It was struck down, and there, I could get into a, a lot of sort of politics here about what that might have meant for the House. But knowing that that is not there, and knowing that Title Forty Two is bound up in court, what is your thought right now on the status of security on the border in your district? Well, certainly, uh, it, uh, Title 42 looks like it's going to go away. It's a health order. It's not an immigration right. order. I but You want that, that to happen. But I want it to extend till the uh, administration comes up with a new policy, a policy that will allow these migrant seekers to go in in an early pathway through the ports of entry or online and ask for asylum. And if they come in between ports of entry like they're doing right now, Either they'll be asked to go voluntarily return themselves or they're going to be deported with some sort of penalty where they cannot apply for the next five years or so for asylum. We've we got to have consequences. The problem is there are no consequences. We can add technology. We can add personnel. But you've got to have the right policy with the mixture of personnel and technology. Are you at odds with the White House on that? Well, I've always, from the very beginning, and I can tell you December 10th, uh, December 10th, 2020, is when I called the transition team, the Biden transition team, and I said, hey, look, I want to offer my services. My understanding is December of 2020, I was already telling them that people were lining up to come across. Uh, and I kept on trying to talk to them, but they have a different mindset. And unfortunately, without due respect, a lot of the people that have the White House have immigration uh, background, which is okay. But who's listening to the men and women in green? Who's listening to the border communities? Yeah. Somebody's got to listen to my border communities. Well, this is a tough spot here, knowing that this is going to be a court decision and not likely a legislative one. Uh, do you have any sense of timing on when the Supreme Court comes back around on Title 42? 
Uh, no, we don't. You know, they, they ask for those briefs pretty quickly, and we'll wait what happens. But uh, I'm hoping that the, uh, that the uh, administration will come up with a policy that will have an orderly pathway for asylum seekers and consequences if they don't. Is there enough money in this budget to help this? I mean, at some point here, uh, you know, the floodgates could open. As we understand, there are ten or 20,000 people just waiting for this policy change to cross the border. Actually, it's closer to 50,000. I've talked to folks, uh, and it's closer to 50,000. And I think uh, uh, all you have to do is every day just see what's happening at the border, and they're coming in and more. If we don't have a policy that sends a strong message that there are consequences, we can keep throwing money at the border, yeah. uh, but if we don't uh, have the right policy that is having people obey the law, then it's it's not going to happen. And by the way, the other thing is we got to get our friends across the river to do a little bit more. Mexico has a law that says that anybody that transit Mexico has to come in a, through a legal port of entry or an airport, and they have to transit the same way. They're not doing that. So if Mexico would just enforce this law and we enforce our laws, uh, I think this could stop uh, rather quickly. Very interesting. Uh, we're spending time with Congressman Henry Cuellar, Democrat from Texas, who's preparing to vote uh, just to get back to where we started on this uh, omnibus budget so everybody can go home. I know your, your colleagues in the Senate are probably on airplanes uh, right now, Congressman. Uh, the, the analysis in Washington was that if that Mike Lee amendment had passed and Title 42 was extended in this bill, it could not have passed the House, that there would have been a revolt among progressives in your party. Was that correct? That is correct. I mean, some of us do support Title 42, but there are a lot of progressives that don't. Since we have a very slim majority and we don't know how many Republicans, and as you know, the Republican leadership is whipping against the bill, then that would have put this bill in uh, jeopardy. And, uh, and uh, even though I support Title 42, in this particular situation, I think it would have not made sense. Congressman, before you leave us, do you have a sense of timing tomorrow on these votes? I understand that uh, Steny Hoyer, the majority leader, has declared 9 a.m. the time for the earliest votes. But how many amendments, how much debate will take place? Uh, there'll be some amendments uh, that might be offered and withdraw, like some of us are going to be offering an amendment to withdraw on Dreamers. But uh, I don't. There will no, uh, there will be no amendments on the floor. I can predict that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just going to be an up and down vote on it. And I predict that we are going to keep the government open and we'll get it uh, done tomorrow. So this will and be again, quick. Uh, it should be uh, quick after the debate. I hope you get back to where you're going. Uh, are you on an airplane to Texas right after? Well, I, I, I'll just say this. Uh, Texas is a lot warmer than a northeast right now. <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> and based on what I see coming, you're moving in the right direction, Congressman. Thank you for coming back. We'd like to talk to you more about uh, border security in the new year and see where this debate goes over Title 42. Congressman Henry Cuellar, the Democrat from Texas, who tweeted 22 hours ago, the U.S. should immediately implement a policy for asylum seekers where they request relief in an orderly pathway and there should be strong consequences, including removal for those who don't follow the proper procedures. He's an outlier in many ways in his Democratic Party and certainly, as he just uh, made clear, uh, does not see eye to eye with the White House on a lot of this. Let's assemble the panel. I'm glad to say Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors 
They finally got something done here in the Senate. Rick, you, of course, uh, spent so much time there. What's that feeling when it goes over to the House? Do you sort of, you know, gird your teeth and, and just hope that everything goes all right? No, you just forget about it and get out of town. <laughs> you get on an airplane. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, the, the luxury the Senate has is very few of their bills fail in the House. And so they have a record of accomplishment that uh, they know that if they can get it done, uh, especially a, a, a vote like 68 to 29, where there's it's a it's a it's a no brainer. Yeah. Uh, they know that that it's going to sl- sail through. Uh, frankly, uh, they've had the uh, benefit uh, for quite some time of having Nancy Pelosi, who actually runs pretty tight ship in the House. And uh, and so uh, it'll be interesting to see next year whether or not this kind of outcome can be reinforced in the House if uh, if um, uh, Kevin McCarthy is the speaker with a with a with a caucus is pretty unruly. So this sails right through tomorrow morning, I guess, uh, Jeannie. As we mentioned, 9 a.m. is when things get going in the House. I suspect by lunch, House members are headed for National Airport. Um, What did you make of Congressman Cuellar's commentary on the way this immigration debate went down? He, He doesn't seem to feel like there's enough money or, more importantly, planning for what is about to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important conversation, and I'm so glad to hear from him on Sound On because he is a very important voice in the Democratic Party. We don't hear enough on the Democratic side. He is somebody who was primaried by the far left, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, put up a challenger to him because they feel he is far too conservative, and that is reflected in his views on uh, immigration. And You know, the Democratic Party has got to be broader than that if they are going to build a core. And he makes a very important case. Title 42 is going away. There's no question about that. But it can't go away with nothing in its place. And that's where he has an important message to send. And it's a message that he's been trying to send, if you listen to him, as I know you do, to the Biden administration for a long time, and he doesn't feel like it's been gotten through. And so I think it would be incumbent on the Biden administration to take seriously the arguments of Democrats Mm -hmm. living on the border. And he is somebody who I think has a reasonable position in saying you can't just have people streaming in Title 42 lifted and nothing in its place. Congress is not going to pass comprehensive immigration reform in the next year. We know that. So something has got to be done to address it. And that is up to the Biden administration. It's not a great situation for anybody, but it's the best we can do. It's probably going to be by executive order. Boy, yeah, uh, this is something, Rick. Does that mean that Mike Lee actually succeeded in, in getting this conversation going on a more mainstream level, even though that amendment failed? You know, look, anytime that you, know, you can at least test the system, uh, see who's voting with you and against you uh, is is some element of progress. But I would say, you know, without comprehensive reform, it's highly unlikely you're ever going to cobble together the kind of votes you need to pass uh, any one of these because on their own, they have uh, a lot of opposition. Uh, and and so if you put them together in a package and the package can garner enough support to actually get passed and there are trade-offs, those trade-offs are what the strength of the bill will be. And that's why I think it's a fallacy to go after Dreamers alone or Title 42 alone or Border right. Security alone. Because on its own, none of those have the kind of support that they need. But together, they could create a coalition of the willing to get something finally done on immigration reform. When you pull out here, zoom out for a moment, Jeannie, and look at this uh, bill being passed likely tomorrow, I'm assuming no one has any doubt about that at this point. Uh, Chuck Schumer was in a pretty good mood when he when he strode into the, the, the radio TV gallery to answer sort of year-end questions 
from reporters today. Is this a, a big win for him, even though it's three months late? It, it really is. I have to say, Chuck Schumer was not somebody I was banking on at the beginning of the year or last year to have the year he has had. He has got to feel really good mm. about the year he has had the legislation they have pushed through in a really, really tough environment. And of course, capped by this bill. I agree. It is not ideal. It is months late. It is, you know, nobody has time to look at it. As you've talked about, it's over 4,000 pages. All of that said, important things in here, like the Ukraine aid, like the TikTok ban, like the Electoral Count Act and other things, I think he can go home feeling like he's had a really good year. And again, I don't think many people expected out of Chuck Schumer what he's been able to deliver as majority leader, and he's doing it again next year, which is the stunning part, thanks in large part to Donald Trump. He's in the position again. At the same time, Rick, Mitch McConnell scored a major victory with defense spending. They both go home feeling good about it. Yeah, there's um, uh, high fives uh, in the uh, Senate on both sides of the aisle. I mean, big increases in defense spending, uh, got the package that Republicans wanted without a commensurate increase in domestic spending. Yeah. Um, You know, look, I mean, this is it's not the perfect way for government to operate, but it got it done this time. We're walking out with Rick and Jeannie on a Thursday here on the fastest hour in politics. The panel stays with us as we look to the leadership fight next. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Fascinating to hear the analysis in Doug Krisner's update there, the idea that This omnibus that they've been wrestling over, this massive budget, $1.7 trillion, will inject enough life into the economy to actually make a positive difference. Plays out in the market, comes back around again as good politics, I suppose. We reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us here on Sound On. What do you make of that, Rick, or is that that wishful thinking? There are a lot of Republicans who are upset about the scale and the size of the spending here suggesting it would be inflationary and continue a lot of the challenges we're dealing with. Yeah, it's it's interesting to have conversations with members when they start talking about, you know, we've spent too much money, 1.7 trillion dollars is going to, you know, add to the inflation bucket and and then you start saying, "Well, you know, the 850 billion of that was defense spending." Oh yeah, but that's fine. We cannot do that. <laughs> right. Um and so uh yeah, you know, look, I mean, it's a tale of two cities, right? Everybody wants these programs because they have some particular interest in it, either from a, a national security or a you know government policy point of view, uh, but they don't really take into consideration very often the net impact on the economy. I mean, like, when did we ever hear anyone say, "Gee, I'm really worried about the inflationary aspects of a 1.7 dollar trillion, uh, 1.7 trillion dollar federal budget?" Uh, and so I, I do think this is going to come home to roost next year. Uh, people will still be focused on inflation. They'll be f- worried about recession. 
And these kinds of spending, I mean, look, this is a joint effort. As we've said many times, 68 votes for this in the That's Senate. Right. Republicans and Democrats alike piled on the Everybody gravy train. So uh, it'll be interesting to see next year's debate. Well, you know, it, it comes, of course, at a time as the Federal Reserve is hiking interest rates to, to beat inflation. Uh, Jeannie, is, is the White House helping to stoke the fire while they're at it? You know, they are. and, and the I mean, it's not a stimulus bill. We should be clear about that, right? This is the budget for crying out loud, but there are significant increases. There are significant increases. And the reality is for all of the really intense debates we have or hear about over discretionary spending, the most important thing that has to happen is to address those mandatory programs. And there's only two choices. I mean, in some ways, it's really simple. You either slow the spending on things like Social Security, Medicare, or you raise revenue. Nobody is politically prepared to do either. I mean, look at Rick Scott. He made this proposal. It was political suicide for the Republicans. They walked away from it. The Democrats used it all election season. But the reality is, if you want to have a concerted conversation, it's slowing those programs or raising revenue. And neither is going to happen in the new year. And that's the, you know, sort of uh, frustrating aspect of what's going on in Washington, D.C., as spending increases by large amounts. And it has over the last several years. That's, that doesn't mean, though, that we're going to actually have a debate over spending in the presidential campaign, are we, Rick? Oh, for sure. I mean, Republicans running against each other will pile on the Democrats saying, wow, you know, this is, you know, out of control government spending. Democrats never saw a taxpayer they didn't want to fleece. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and yet they've done exactly the same thing throughout the entire course of the last couple decades. So, uh, look, if we can get back to uh, having that debate in earnest, it's great for the country. But uh, I really think that uh, we, we're going to wait a while before we see a Congress actually spend uh, or decrease spending and put into effect limitations on spending that we used to have that, that, that helped govern that kind of activity. It was the last news briefing today from Nancy Pelosi as speaker, which was pretty remarkable. We thought that might have been the case last week. She ended up scheduling another because of uh, this budget uh, coming back to the House. And she was asked, interestingly, if she had any advice for the incoming leadership here. Of course, this is the final act that we're talking about, knowing that there's a new Democratic leadership, of course, uh, with Hakeem Jeffries and Kevin McCarthy across the aisle. Here's how she answered. Well, I don't think anybody needs any advice from anybody. You've heard me say even about our own distinguished leadership. I'm not going to be the mother-in-law comes in and say, this is the way my son likes his turkey stuffing, his scrambled eggs, or anything else. They have to have their own vitality about it all, and they do. I don't know how you like your scrambled eggs, Jeannie. Uh, but interesting when she's put on the spot that she, that she took the opportunity to not answer that. That's right. Said like somebody who raised, what, five kids (laughs) and knew how to handle Donald Trump as a result. And she's 100 percent right. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has been a brilliant speaker, a brilliant leader. She's obviously not leaving Congress, just stepping down from her leadership post. And she shows it there. She left them without a succession fight. Hakeem Jeffries was able Mm -hmm. to swoop in. And while she may certainly talk to him and I'm sure has mentored him behind the scenes, she's not going to do it publicly and she is 100% right to, to approach it that way. And, you know, who wouldn't want a mother-in-law like that? <laughs> the follow-up there, Rick, was, you know, have you been in talks with Kevin McCarthy? He, he doesn't have this figured out yet, but you'd think, you know, just for some kind of a succession plan, 
There might be a couple of meetings. And the answer is basically no. Here's Pelosi again. We have some. We haven't had any formal conversations, but we we interact. And um, I'm just hoping that on January 3rd that they'll be expeditiously able uh, to elect a speaker so that we can get on uh, with the, the work of the Congress. She seems genuine about that. Uh, you know, he, he would be her speaker, not that she's going to vote for him. Rick, I don't know what she does about that. Uh, but in this particular case, does that lack of continuity become a problem like like it might be in the White House? Uh, not so much. Uh, uh, they're going to react to the president's agenda to some degree. So there, there's a, an agenda setting exercise that's going to happen from the White House. State of the Union is in January, and that will be a lot of the focus of attention, uh, doling out committee assignments and, and chairmanships and whatnot. But uh, look, I think the point she makes is an important one, and that is she hopes it actually happens expeditiously. In other words, right. like we're not halfway through the, the month of January and we're still we're debating who's going to be the Speaker of the House. Well, so what are you hearing? I mean, this this seems to be uh, not getting easier for Kevin McCarthy. You tend to think that time might really be what it takes here. But you've, you've got some members who are really dug in and Democrats, Rick, aren't going to be running to his rescue. No, time is not his friend. Uh, the longer he goes without 218 yeses huh. uh, publicly announced for him, uh, he puts himself in jeopardy. Uh, we already have anecdotal evidence that people, Republicans, are going to Stephen Scalise and others saying, keep your powder dry. This might not work out for him. I'd be for you if you were willing to do it. And and and, and so, look, I mean, these are, these are games that are played at the highest level. Um, uh, never trust your colleague. The only thing worse than a Democrat Jeez. is your colleague, a Republican. Oh, man. <laughs> and, and they never tell you the truth, right? That uh, A license to lie is called being a congressman. Oh, uh, and so uh, it's it's a tough, tough business. And, and there's a lot of power at stake. And people do crazy things around power. I mean, in Wall Street, it's yeah. about crazy people. You know, people do crazy things around money. Sure. In Washington, it's about power. And that's what you're seeing in real time right now. And the longer this goes without a very clear signal that he's got these votes wrapped up, uh, he's he's in jeopardy of losing the momentum that he had going into this. Jeannie, you were suggesting the other day that this is actually the worst possible thing that might happen to Kevin McCarthy. And if he does not get that gavel, uh, a bit of a gift, actually, because he could find himself certainly around a debt ceiling negotiation deeper into his first year with an unruly caucus in a very difficult situation and potentially one that as Lisa Camuso Miller said the other day, could end his speakership early. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it files under be careful what you wish for, especially yeah. if, to Rick's point, in order to get to the 218, he caves on this motion to vacate. That leaves him vulnerable to one member calling to depose him, and right. that's certainly going to happen. I think the debt ceiling, it, certainly over that, but almost every other issue. If the man can't get to 218 to get the job, imagine how it's going to be when he tries to lord power over these his, his caucus's heads. It, it's not going to work. You know, we either need a lot more OK buttons out there in the next like 48, 72 hours, or this is going to be moved eventually to somebody else. And Republicans have to be very, very careful. This is like the gang that can't shoot straight. You've got to get a speaker well, or the Democrats yeah. may have power that they shouldn't have going into the 118th. Well, he was one of the Republicans who chose not to stand last night uh, for uh, President Zelensky, from what I understand. And we're going to talk a little more about that now that we've had a minute to let uh, all of this settle. Uh, it's 
our first opportunity to spend some time and reflect with Rick and Jeannie on this historic address to Congress. Zelensky, uh, for his part, is already back in Ukraine. It was it was like a 10 hour visit to the nation's capital and head spinner. The whole thing was culminating with the big address last night, but a long day of meetings and negotiations, uh, talks with President Biden at the White House. There are still skeptics, though, as we heard following the speech from a number of Republicans in the House and, by the way, not just in the House, but also in the Senate. We're going to hear from them uh, coming up here in a special conversation with Daniel Fried, the former U.S. ambassador to Poland, down with the Atlantic Council, will be with us, too, along with the panel. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. You know, while we're talking about the budget passing, you know what that means, right? The $45 billion set aside for Ukraine that was considered controversial by some on Capitol Hill. It's a big number. Also approved today by the Senate. And we know that there are some naysayers in the Senate, which we'll get to a little bit later on. But this, of course, just hours after President Volodymyr Zelensky uh, was here in Washington. It was a 10-hour visit. What a whirlwind. He went from the front lines in the Donbass one day through Poland and hours later is sitting in the Oval Office with President Biden. They did the joint news conference. We talked about it right around this time yesterday, in fact, and then he ended up on Capitol Hill in an historic address to a joint session. Here he is. Against all odds and doom and gloom, Scenarios, Ukraine didn't fall. Ukraine is alive and kicking. Alive and kicking. Interesting that he did not use a teleprompter and did speak in English the whole time. That's not an easy task as he stood there in the olive green sweater that he's become so well known uh, since this whole thing started 301 now days ago, the big message, though, the resounding message really came down to support. He wanted to say thank you, but also to frame what the U.S. was actually doing in helping to support this war effort. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. And so we wonder what changed, if anything? And that's where we start with Daniel Fried, the former U.S. ambassador to Poland, now fellow at the Atlantic Council. Ambassador, welcome. It's great to have you here and happy holidays. I wonder your thoughts on the impact of this speech beyond it being a wonderful moment, an historic moment. Will act, would it actually impact policy? It could impact policy. Uh, that speech brought home to a lot of members of Congress that this is a real war, and the Ukrainians are fighting back. Zelensky symbolizes their resistance, and those kind of human moments make a difference. I remember when Lech Wałęsa spoke to Congress in 1990, uh, 1989. Uh, they increased U.S. assistance for Poland right at the beginning of its transformation. Now, communism is already gone when Wałęsa was here, and the fighting is still raging in Ukraine. But speeches like this by leaders who symbolize resistance or Winston Churchill coming to Washington right after Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So those are fair comparisons for you. Yeah, I think I think it's fair. This is a big war. Putin started a major land war in Europe. We haven't seen this in Europe since 1945. Hmm. And it's a war of conquest. 
So you bet it's a big deal, and American interests are at stake. They're at stake now in Ukraine, the same uh, way we had interests at stake in Europe during World War II. Mm-hmm. And for the same reason, by the way, uh, the one sentence is, <laughs> it's not an American interest to have dictators uh, trampling other countries in Europe. It's not in the American interest. Roughly 85 House Republicans were in the chamber for the speech. We know that there were several of them not applauding or or standing uh, for the ovations, Ambassador. What's your thought on that? What would be your message to them? Well, what would Ronald Reagan say? Hmm. He'd be applauding a fighter for freedom. He believed in, in those fighting for freedom. He didn't believe in caving to dictators. And I do understand the calls for a good accounting of the money that we've been spending on behalf of the Ukrainians. And I think the Biden administration is is ready to answer those questions. But for some, it's not what some Republicans, a minority, thank goodness, think it's not in the American interest or a few are even on Putin's side, which is simply revolting. Right. Do you believe that money has been spent wisely? I think so. I think that Ukraine's resistance has been made possible by the weapons the Americans have sent, that we have sent. That's a good investment. You're investing in freedom and investing in showing a dictator, that's Vladimir Putin, that he's not going to win. And Americans should consider, suppose the Ukrainians win. That's a big deal. It would show the Chinese that democracies are not as weak as they th- they may think. It will show that America is capable of performing its role as leader of the free world under tough conditions. This is a case where the Ukrainians are not asking Americans to fight for them. They'll do the fighting themselves. I think President Biden is right to draw the line. No American troops in Ukraine, no American planes over Ukraine. But we're helping them. Uh, we're helping them defend themselves. That's the right role. I'm glad you could join us, uh, and I do hope you're having a great holiday season. We always learn something when we talk to Daniel Fried. Happy New Year, former U.S. Ambassador to Poland, fellow at the Atlantic Council. Listen quickly uh, to Josh Hawley, Senator Josh Hawley. This is not just you know a, a couple of Republicans in the House on why he skipped the speech last night. Well, listen, I didn't go to the speech because I, I didn't want to be part of a photo op asking for more money from the United States government when they haven't given us a single piece of accounting on anything they spent. I mean, we spent $100 billion in blank checks. There's no accountability whatsoever, no oversight whatsoever. And meantime, our European allies are continuing to sandbag. We have spent more on Ukraine than all of the Europeans put together, and it's on their continent. Quick conversation with the panel on this Rick Davis, does that cry get louder in the Republican Senate? Yeah, I think actually it might backfire. Uh, You know, uh, President Zelensky did such a fine job and and he he impressed so many people, especially conservative Republicans who might have even been starting to maybe listen to the Josh Hollies, the part of sort of the Putin crowd. And Mm. and and I think he pushed that back hard. And so I, I actually think that that you've seen a rally around uh, Ukraine in the end of this year that will move into next year. Now, obviously, uh, next year, we don't know what's going to happen. And, and, and certainly this, you know, $45 billion that's in the current spending package 
uh, will take uh, the Ukrainians a long way into next year uh, as far as mounting a defense against the Russian invasion. But mm-hmm. uh, I actually think these 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 voices for Putin are going to isolate themselves. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin is going to make it harder and harder for them to sound uh, like they are right. uh, encouraging him. And so I, I, I think it actually may backfire. Do progressives uh, stay in, in the lane they're in right now, Jeannie, or does this become a problem on, on the other side of the aisle? You know, I do think we will hear from progressives and they have a right point to make that, you know, what is the end game here? We know it's something that the two presidents were talking about yesterday. But the reality is for Republicans like Josh Hawley and these are Trump Republicans to shout about accountability. There is accountability. Everybody wants it, as the ambassador just said. We'll have more with Rick and Jeannie ahead. Some final thoughts on the fastest hour in politics. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. And every four years, we get stories about rock stars suing politicians for playing their songs without permission. This goes back years, right? Though Donald Trump may have had more of these encounters than any. Tom Petty, the Rolling Stones. But this latest one goes to a new level as a member of the band Journey. The keyboard player, singer, Jonathan Cain, his name, he's a friend of Donald Trump, has been served, imagine this, he's, he got a cease and desist from his own bandmate, Neil Schoen, after Cain uh, performed. And you might have seen this, it went viral on social media, he performed one of their old hits at a recent party at Mar-a-Lago. Listen. Yeah. That's Cain on the piano with Carrie Lake, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Kimberly Guilfoyle all singing up there on stage with a bigger crowd at Mar-a-Lago. Black tie crowd looking on, including Newt Gingrich is there talking to Donald Trump in the video. The cease and desist letter obtained by Variety reads in part, such conduct is extremely deleterious to the Journey brand as it polarizes the band's fans and outreach. Journey, it says, should not be political. So Kane, the keyboard player here uh, who co-wrote that song, has apparently been a longtime member of Trump's inner circle. He's the husband of Paula White. This is a televangelist and Donald Trump's spiritual advisor. If you don't know her, here she is at an event before the 20 election, praying on stage in chants, channeling God for Trump to win re-election. For I hear victory, 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 victory in the quarters of heaven, in the quarters of heaven. Victory, 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 victory. For angels are being released right now. Angels are being dispatched right now. Hamanda ata ata rata te de baka sanda ata ambo osa katarite eke banda ata rike didi ashata. Angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. I do wonder how she gets along with the rest of the band. Now, I know the panel has strong feelings about this. I'm sure I scared both of them already. Uh, but Rick Davis, you've actually had to deal with a couple bands over the years or running campaigns. They can't stop this from happening, right? 
Well, yeah, they can embarrass you. Uh, uh, You know, look, I've been running Republican campaigns. There's not a rock band in the country that wants you using their music. I remember Bob Dole got sued at least twice. Perfectly good music, but uh, didn't you have to deal with Hart over the Barracuda thing? Oh yeah, I mean, there. So, so yeah, I'm used to this. I mean, and kind of happy to see them fighting amongst themselves for a change. (laughs) Yeah, boy, you know, you're breaking up the band here when it comes to Journey at Mar-a-Lago, Jeannie. I don't know if you saw that video, but. They were having a really good time. Yeah, and I thought Journey, I thought they were the most polarized when Steve Perry left, and I was devastated in 19, what was it, the late 90s, 80s? I don't know when. And now to hear this, what happened to being faithful? What happened to open arms? What is happening to Journey? I'm listen, so sad. Listen and to this. I have no idea what ha- was happening with that woman either. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if you know her, but she was also a, a meme and, a, and and something that went viral uh, during the campaign, I just Rick, when 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 a presidential candidate has a spiritual advisor, how do we infer? What do we infer from that? Well, I mean, you know, it, almost every presidential candidate has some kind of a link to a ministry, spiritual advisor. Billy Graham was uh, a great spiritual advisor to um, do- a dozen presidents, it seems, over the years. So it's not an unusual thing. Um, uh, that being said, uh, I can't remember a single spiritual advisor uh, speaking in tongues and casting right. down angels to get a victory on election day. So it uh, she's good. really taking it up a few notches. Do you have a spiritual advisor, Jeannie? No, I might need one. I think she needs to go back and talk to whoever was talking to her. They gave her the wrong advice or the wrong <laughs> forecast. I think Journey is, is Jeannie's spiritual advisor here. I felt some real passion with that, and I appreciate you guys. Come back, in. Steve Perry. Come, Come back. back. Steve Perry, make <laughs> Jeannie's New Year, please. Jeannie Shanzano, thank you, and Rick Davis. Back together again. We've got one more, the three of us here, for the year. Is that right? No, this was... Happy New Year, Rick and Jeannie. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.